want to invite you to take your Bible, turn with me to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. This is the great faith chapter. Story after story of what faith looks like. Uh, And we might be here a little while with all these stories this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2, so that ought to give you some idea at the rate we're going here. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. I know it's not long, but in honor of God's word, I still invite you to stand with me as we read our passage together. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray, Father, that you would teach us uh, what faith is, or that we would understand it uh, not just simply theologically, but, but definitely theologically, but also practically. Lord, as it applies to our lives, as it applies to every part of our lives, as it applies to our salvation. I ask, Father, that you give us ears to hear, uh, that you give our minds Uh, the ability to wrestle and to think, that you give our wills the strength to walk out of here in the power of faith in Jesus Christ alone. So we come now and we just say, glorify the name of Jesus. Come Holy Spirit, point us to Jesus. Jesus, point us to the Father. And may the three-in-one God be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. We have now come to the place in Hebrews after a short break where the writer is is calling his readers to self-reflection and decision. How will his readers respond to what we have seen in the first 10 chapters of clearly seeing that Jesus is greater than every facet of religion, everything that was part of the Old Testament system of Judaism. Will they decide now to justify themselves according to the law, to to go back to life under the law, or will they decide to rest secure in justification by faith, by faith? The whole point of the decision is one of life and death, one of eternal destiny. It still is for us. And so the writer of Hebrews sets out to show us in this chapter that that faith has always been God's way. Always has been that that way. It's not a New Testament concept. Uh, It's an Old Testament reality. It's a whole way of God reality from Abraham to Moses to the prophets. They were ultimately commended Not for their works, but for their faith. For their faith. From Genesis to Malachi, the Old Testament scriptures teach that God has always been pleased by faith over religious deeds. It's it's nothing new. 
And so he's talking, of course, to Jews who have converted. And so he wants to go back to people, uh, to, to a history. These people are thinking about, well, we want to return back to perhaps the life we left behind. But then he's showing, well, actually the life you led behind, all of the heroes of your faith, of, of your faith were people of faith. I, I've heard uh, the book of Hebrews chapter 11 referred to as the Hall of Faith. Uh, some people call it the Hall of Fame of Faith. That's what the Hall of Faith is, is a reference to. Some people call it the Hall of Heroes, Heroes of the Faith. Can I tell you something, honestly? I hate that. I really do. I, I don't believe that's exactly what's going on here. I've never been to a, a Hall of Fame. If I did go to a Hall of Fame, there would be two that I'd be interested in going to. Uh, both of them happen to be in Ohio. Why? Why would you ever put a Hall of Fame in Ohio? But I would go to uh, the, the NFL Hall of Fame, and I would want to go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Those would be my, my two. But here's the thing, if I were to go to one of those Hall of Fames, I would not leave the Hall of Fame going, you know what? I want to run. I want to be the next Walter Payton. I would not leave the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and say, you know what? I want to play the guitar like Jimi Hendrix, upside down and everything. I would never do that. Why? Because you go to the Hall of Fame to see greatness. Greatness. I looked at statistics uh, this week of how many people, how many kids that are playing high school football end up going to college and playing football on scholarship or even just as a walk-on. It was less than, than 5% make it to college. And then I looked at how many of those kids will actually make it to the pros. It was less than 0.5% of college players will end up in the pros. And then I looked to see what the percentage is of those who will end up from the pros into the Hall of Fame. It's 2%. So when you go to the Hall of Fame, you're looking at the cream of the crop. You're looking at extraordinary individuals. And you can never emulate them. They're, they're like museum pieces. You go and you say, oh, man, that was Jimi Hendrix's guitar. I don't think I'm going to go to the next and say, oh, my goodness, there's my tennis racket. I used to play air guitar back in junior high. It's not going to be there. I'm not going to go to the NFL Hall of Fame and say, look, there's my junior high jersey right next to Emmett Smith. It's not there. You know why? Because I will never, ever be what they were. Well, when we call this chapter the Hall of Fame of Faith, it has that same kind of mindset. So we... <clears throat> We look at these people and we go, oh my goodness, these are the, the, the upper echelon of followers of God. I can never do what they do. I can never be what they were. The problem with that is that's not the point of the writer. In fact, we'll see when we get to chapter 12 that he calls this group of individuals a great cloud of witnesses. They are witnesses. They are not people for us to stand back and go, oh, man, that's awesome. They're people for us to look at and go, you know what, they are just, they were ordinary people just like us. And yet they trusted God 
and so can I. So we're to look at this not as uh, just people that we just emulate and go, oh my goodness, let's just lift them up. If you really want to call this the Hall of Fame of Faith, and there is only one entry in this Hall of Fame, and that's Christ. And so having said that, we look now at Hebrews chapter 11, which begins by a definition and ask the question, what is faith? What is faith? Well, at first, that seems like a rather easy question to answer, but upon further investigation, we, we discover that Christians for two millennia now have debated what faith actually is and how faith operates in the life of the believer. This has been, we've debated, we can't even decide what faith is. For example, many charismatics think that if you are not experiencing supernatural signs and wonders, such as healing or material blessing, then you do not have enough faith. You don't have enough faith. If you just had more faith, this you would experience the, the, this outpouring, these blessings of God. Or consider the ongoing debate between those who say that faith is simply believing in Jesus versus those who argue that faith means allegiance or full commitment to Jesus. To which the other side says, well, if you add allegiance and commitment to Jesus, you're adding works to what faith is, to which the other side said, well, no, faith without works is dead. And on and on it goes. Or what about the name it and claim it folks? Right? When you think about it, are they not, in a sense, displaying more faith than the rest of us? I mean, look at these people, right? They're going up. I believe that this is mine in Jesus. I'm claiming that. Or, or think about this. Think about the people who refuse medical treatment because they are certain that their faith will bring about the healing that they desire. And you go, man, that, that's incredible faith when you think about it. Or is it? So we need to answer the question, what exactly is faith? What does the Bible say faith is? And to answer that, we look here at Hebrews chapter 11. Now, before we dig in completely, let me say this at the outset. Let me put a disclaimer on this message, which is simply this. I cannot cover all there is to say about the subject of faith in one sermon. If I did... This sermon would last four hours, but lucky for you, I've whittled it down to about two and a half. So I, I'm sure you're going to have more to wrestle with when I'm done with this, maybe more questions than answers, but the reality is we're going to continue to unfold and unpack as we go through this chapter uh, some of these questions that you might have. But just want to say out up front that we're, we're doing a foundational message and asking the question, what is faith, and trying to find answers for
from Scripture. So to do that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the question, what is faith, and I'm going to divide it into two questions. That will help us kind of take the, the, the answer to what is faith and, and see it maybe in a little smaller proportions in order to get a picture of the whole. So the two questions I'm going to ask and, and, and attempt to answer this morning is, what is saving faith? What is saving faith? And, and number two, I'm going to ask and attempt to answer the question, what is sanctifying faith? There's your outline. What is saving faith? What is sanctifying faith? So let's begin with the question, what is saving faith? What is saving faith? Tom, there you go. What is saving faith? Let, let, let me start things out on saving faith by asking you a, a rather simple question. Are we saved by faith alone? Yes or no? The answer is no. We are not saved by faith alone. I know that sounds controversial, but hear me out. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Uh, what matters is that we understand the object of our faith. Faith by itself doesn't save us, right? Jesus saves us, and we have faith in how he saved us. So we, our, our faith is in a person. We're not saved by simple faith, because the reality is, is that everyone lives by faith. Everyone. The atheist lives by faith. Right? Can they, with absolute certainty, tell you or show you or prove to you that God does not exist? No. They can't do it. And so they have to live according to faith that God doesn't exist. And so faith alone is not enough. So, so there's a difference then between faith and saving faith, a faith that saves. Obviously, it's the object of the faith that matters. Are you familiar with uh, Pascal's wager? Blaise Pascal was a 17th century mathematician, philosopher, theologian, and he came up with an argument to convince lost people that they should become Christians. How, how do you convince someone who doesn't believe in God that they should believe in God? So Pascal's wager goes something like this, right? I, I say that there is a God, and you say that there is not a God. So if you're right, and God does not exist, then when I die, that means that really nothing is going to happen to me other than the fact that I die. And in fact, after I die, I will not even realize that I was wrong. However, if I'm right, that God does exist, and you're wrong when you die, 
Well, you're in some serious trouble. You're going to be in some serious trouble because now you are going to spend eternity in hell. So what seems to you to be the smartest bet, right? the smartest wager? What carries the most risk? Well, obviously, unbelief would carry the most risk. Uh, so you, you should, the argument goes, so you should uh, go with the smartest payoff and therefore believe. Well, that, that's pretty uh, reasonable. That makes reasonable sense. But the problem with that argument is it cannot produce saving faith. Notice there's no mo- mention in that argument. There's no mention of Christ. There's no mention of the cross. There's no mention of resurrection. There's no mention of sin. Faith here is reduced to nothing but a, a good bet. A, a better alternative if you're going to wager the potential, the possibilities. So saving faith, by contrast, is more than wanting to simply avoid hell and go to heaven because it seems out of the two choices that heaven would be a a, a better choice. Evangelism that says, you don't want to go to hell, do you? Of course you don't want to go to hell. Therefore, you need to pray this prayer so you get out of hell free. It's like a get out of hell free card. That right there is going to produce and has produced a lot of false converts. Hebrews 11.1 gives us a better definition. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, we need to break this down into bite-sized pieces, which is why we're hardly getting past verses 1 and 2. Faith, it says, is the assurance of things hoped for. Well, that word, which is translated as assurance, is the Greek word hypostasis. You're going, wow, that's awesome. right? Well, hypostasis is translated as assurance here, but the word can also be translated as substance. Substance. That's the way that the King James, the New King James Version translates it. And I actually believe that's a better translation of the word hypostasis in this context. So we would read like this. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What is substance? Faith is a substance. What in the world does that mean? Well, faith, it means that faith is not some kind of airy, uh, dreamy, wishful kind of thing. That it is based on reality. It is reasonable. It has substance. It has weight. It has subject matter. The writer of Hebrews, uh, to help us know why I believe that substance is the right word here, the writer of Hebrews used the word hypostasis at the beginning of his letter. He actually used it three times in his letter. He used it at the beginning of the letter, and I think that helps us understand what his intent is here. He used it in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, right out of the gate in Hebrews chapter 1. He, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of of his nature, 
That word nature is the Greek word hypostasis. It's the same word. In other words, Jesus is the same substance, the same nature as the Father. So substance is used to point to the glory and the deity of Christ. Secondly, the word hypostasis is also used to mean a foundation. A foundation. Faith, therefore, has a solid foundation. right? And that foundation, we know, is, is Christ alone. So our faith is an assurance. It's the way it's translated here in the ESV. It's an assurance in the nature, the majesty, and the glory of Christ. He is the substance and everything that he will bring about in the future of things hoped for, right? All of those things we experience in Christ now by faith. Be with me? Do you with me? Well, you know, you got me wondering. So, so Jesus is the foundation of our faith. Saving faith is faith in Jesus Christ. He is the foundation. He is the substance of our faith. All right, good. All right, so he is the object of our faith. And not only is the object of our faith, but check this out. He is the one who gives us faith. Faith is a gift. It's a gift given to us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it like this. For by grace... You have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What's the gift of God? Your faith, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So if you have faith in God, you have that faith because God gave you that faith. It is a gift, right? It's not offered, this is hard to accept, but it's not offered to everyone, lest everyone would be saved if that was the case. Romans 1.8, Paul says this, speaking of the Christians in Rome, he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Isn't that awesome? So Paul doesn't say to the believers in Rome, he doesn't say, hey, man, great job on producing so much faith. I'm so proud of you. No, he, he thanks God for their faith because God is the one who gave it to them. And it is being proclaimed all of the world, not to the glory of the Roman believers, but to the glory of the one who supplied them with their faith. We can't even take credit for the amount of faith we have. We can never sit back and go, you know, at least I have more faith than that, and than so and so. People just need to have more faith. We can't even take credit. If we have an amazing amount of faith, it is because God gave us an amazing amount of faith. Check this out. Romans 12.3 says... For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, 
but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So if you have faith, the amount of faith that you have is all from God. It's all come to you by God. How much then are you responsible here? Well, th there is a responsibility as we will see, but as far as trying to work up a faith, we're not going to do that. As, as far as sharing Christ with someone and, and, and banging your head going, why do you not see this? This is so obvious. Why do you not have faith in this? Because God has to give it to them. That's why. So if someone ever says to you, your prayers would be answered if you just had more faith, is to put the onus of faith on you and not God. It's simply an unbiblical thing to tell people. You're just heaping up shame on someone who is already struggling. So now they're going through their pro problem and they're going, man, obviously I don't have enough faith. Besides that, Jesus said, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. So it's not about the amount of your faith, it's the object of your faith that matters. Nor does faith mean that you will never have doubts. Faith is not the same thing as certainty, right? If we had certainty, faith would not even be necessary. But for reasons known only to God, he chose to make faith the way by which we relate to him, the way we please him. He is most glorified, it seems, that when we trust him. Perhaps God finds more delight in the person who in spite of their doubts continues to trust him versus the person who finds faith easy. In any case, you can always ask God to increase your faith. In fact, we see that from the apostles in Luke 17, 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Well, they, they believe that he's the one who gave it to them. And he is the one that could increase it. So they're asking him, increase our, our faith. Of course, uh, praying that prayer may be just as dangerous of a prayer as asking for more patience. Carefully you pray that. Now, let's consider the substance or the foundation of saving faith. How can you recognize saving faith? Well, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says it like this that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So God says here that there are basically uh, two things that lead to our salvation, two things that are included in, in saving faith. Both of them uh, are working hand in hand together. Both of them are gifts from God. The first one is if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Well, that particular statement, I think, loses a lot of the impact that it would have in 
Jesus' day versus in our day because to confess Jesus as Lord back in his day was to make a declaration of complete and total allegiance. Jesus is my authority. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is the one whom I obey, not Caesar. Caesar is not Lord. Now you make that a public confession back then, it would be very costly. So you didn't do that lightly. Right? You didn't say, okay, well, Jesus is Lord. Just three words, that's it. Now you say that out loud in Rome in the first century, it can cost you your life. So nobody just kind of just threw that out there. It was a very serious and meaningful declaration. Second, he says, you have to believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Well, that, of course, means you believe that Jesus was resurrected. You believe in the resurrection. After all, Jesus can't be Lord if he's not alive. But to believe in the resurrection has a whole lot of other things attached to it. It means that you believe that Jesus is God. It means that you believe that Jesus died for your sins. It means that you believe that Jesus rose again. It means that you believe that he's coming again. It means that you believe that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. It means that you believe that the church is his bride. It means that you believe that Jesus is Lord so that these two things, confessing Jesus is Lord and believing that he was raised from the dead, go together. And so, notice this part of the statement. If you believe what? In your heart. Well, that's another part of saving faith. Uh, you have to believe, it says, you believe with your heart. What in the world does that mean? We use our language so easily, and we just go, oh, I believe that with my whole heart. What do you mean by that? What does that even mean? Well, usually when you think about beliefs, you don't think about your heart. You think about your head. Beliefs are the things that you think in your head are true. So believe with your heart, that's kind of a different reality. Well, in the scriptures, the heart is the engine room of the whole person. It includes your thoughts, but it also includes your will, and it includes your emotions, and it even includes your, your, your body. It includes the whole you. Right? So saving faith is a heart faith. It's more than simply agreeing with some facts in your head about Jesus. It, it, is, it is this certainty that Jesus is who he said he was, and those facts impact your whole being. That's what he said. If you're going to love the Lord your God, you need to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's all of you. So saving faith is, is really about treasuring Christ. It's about treasuring 
Christ. Not just the benefits of salvation, but Christ himself. Saving faith includes loving Jesus with all of our hearts, minds, soul, and strength. The saving faith will automatically include repentance. Is repentance necessary for salvation? Yes. Yes, repentance is, is a change of heart. Repentance is a change in what you love, what you treasure. Repentance is necessary for saving faith. Jesus says in Luke 24, 47, Jesus is, says that repentance is part of the message of the gospel. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. We don't normally add that to the Great Commission, but obviously it's a part of it. And so what do the disciples do? Well, they go out and they start preaching, and they listen to what Jesus said. And so here's the message. Repent, therefore, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. So saving faith includes repentance. Repentance is granted to us. It's a gift. Repentance, listen to me, repentance is not a work. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Repentance is turning from a life to sin. Faith is turning to Christ. So you have both of those things working together. Repentance is granted to us as a gift from God as an accompaniment to our faith. 2 Timothy 2.25 Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Who grants repentance? God. It's all a work of God. Saving faith is a complete work of God. If you've had a life change because of Christ, don't brag about what you did. I used to do this and now I don't do this and now I do this. No, don't brag about yourself. Brag about what Christ has done. Christ in his mercy saved me when I was far from God, when I was still in my sin. In his mercy, he opened my eyes. In his mercy, he is working in me. In his mercy, he is getting me home. It's all him. So let me summarize, all right? Let me summarize. Saving faith includes the following. Number one, It is purely a gift given to you by the grace of God. You didn't earn it. You can't earn it. You don't even deserve it. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're justified. Our justification is by faith, not by works. Second, it has... Christ, saving faith has Christ and his glory as the foundation and the substance, right? My salvation is a gift from God and my salvation uh, is a gift to the Father from Christ. Let me say that again, right? My My salvation, that's a gift from God, but in saving me, right, 
I become a gift from the Father to Christ. Let me show you what I mean. John 6, 37, all those the Father gives me comes to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. The Father has given, it's a gift. We're a gift to Christ. How awesome is that? Third, seeing Christ as my greatest treasure and my source of joy, not simply my escape from hell and a ticket to heaven is what saving faith consists of. He is more than a better alternative to hell. He's so glorious, he's so beautiful, he's so amazing that we must have him. And he completes, he makes our joy full. Fourth, when we see Christ for the treasure that he is, we will gladly repent of anything that competes for our allegiance to him and we will see it for what it really is. A sad substitute for joy. Jesus told this parable about saving faith in Matthew 13, 44. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. Then he went in his joy and he sold all that he had and he bought that field. That's repentance. That's simply what repentance is. is to get rid of everything else in order to have him. Now, faith is more than simply a one-time decision, which brings me to the second question that I want to address from this text, and that is, what is sanctifying faith? What is sanctifying faith? So we, we've laid the, the foundation for saving faith. What is sanctifying faith? Sanctifying, uh, to define the word sanctifying, that means the process of being molded into Christ-likeness. It's the Christian life. Sanctification. What is sanctifying faith? Is it different from saving faith? Well, the same definition of Hebrews 11, verse 1, I think applies to both. Look at the second part of verse 1. Faith is the conviction, the conviction of things not seen. The conviction of things not seen. Well, the word conviction here, now we got again, look at the Greek. The word conviction here also means evidence, which again is how the King James translates it. Right? The evidence of things not seen. What is the evidence of things not seen? It reminds me uh, automatically, I think of the Billy Graham, the famous Billy Graham illustration where he says, you know, it's, it's like the wind. You cannot see the wind, but you can see the evidence of the wind. You, you can't see wind, but you can know if it's windy or not. You can open your window and see the trees blowing. You can see the flags flying. And, and you can go out and you can actually feel it, right? So, so you can't see it, but there is evidence for it. Well, in, in the exact same way, uh, you, you can't see the Holy Spirit, but you can see the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit that comes forth in the fruit in someone's life. Again, 
if you liken it to salvation, you can't actually see a person saved. I mean, they can make the claim, but you can't see that inside something's changed, that they have become a, a new creation. You can't physically, with your eyes, see that. But their faith is the evidence of that reality. That's what faith is, is the evidence that you have been regenerated, redeemed, and born again. Faith is the proof. Uh, Hebrew, or excuse me, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 says, The righteous, and we're righteous, we have the righteousness of Christ, shall live by what? Faith. We shall live by faith. It's not just a decision. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For we walk by faith. The word walk means to live. We live by faith, not by sight. Paul says it like this in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, how, do we see, how does he live it? I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So sanctifying faith consists of our ongoing, continuous relationship with Jesus that our saving faith began. Faith continues to play a huge role in our sanctification, and Christ is still the object of that faith. He says that I live by faith in the Son of God. Uh, and yet, what we discover, and this I think is, is, is where this becomes most helpful in this, all these debates about this, is that there seems to be a, a difference in justifying faith and sanctifying faith. J.C. Rao, in his book called Holiness, which if you haven't read that book, I mean, it's an old book, uh, he was around like in the 18th century. You got to get this book, man. It'll it'll rock your world. It is a great book. It's simply called Holiness. But J.C. Rowell, and look at the beard, man. That's you got to read somebody who can grow a beard like that. You just have to. And notice what he says. He says, moreover, the scriptures nowhere teach us that faith sanctifies us in the same sense and in the same manner that faith justifies us. Justifying faith is a grace that worketh not, but simply trusts, rests, and leans on Christ. Sanctifying faith is grace of which the very life is action. It worketh by love, and like a mainspring moves the whole inward man. Oh, that's so good. Another way to say that, maybe a little more simpler, is to say that faith is the root and sanctifying faith is the fruit. God plants the seed. Have you planted your seeds from last week? Yeah, plant those seeds. God plants the seed of salvation in us. We don't have anything to do with it. He plants the seed. He provides the soil of our, our life, our soul. He plants the seed of the gospel in us. He causes it to grow. He waters it. 
He protects it. It is all the work of God. But in sanctifying faith, we are also called to abide in Christ in order to produce fruit. We must have fruit, and therefore we must be faithful. So sanctifying faith includes faithfulness. This is why James says, which Luther hated because Luther was all about saving faith. James, I think, is talking much more about sanctifying faith. When he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works, can that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What James is saying is that saving faith becomes sanctifying faith, which produces the fruit of faith. <laughs> He's not saying that we're saved by works. He's not saying, you know, if you're, if you have, uh, if you're saved, it's, it's because you help the poor. No, he's saying that that is what faith produces in you. Again, he says this uh, in the next few verses, 18 and 19. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. But even the demons believe that and they shudder. I love that. I love it because uh, in today's age, you know, most people are not even certain that, that if they believe in God at all, that he's one. Even the demons believe that much. They, they're not very good postmodernists. And so uh, James is saying, look, if you say you have faith, you just say it, it doesn't really mean anything. Saying you believe, just saying it, but your life doesn't show it, something's off. The demons can say it. They actually believe it. But genuine faith is revealed by what you do. Now, the, these works, these things that you do, are in no way meritorious of faith. They do not contribute to your salvation in any way, shape, or form. Yet they do provide the evidence that we possess a true and living faith. That's what he says. Faith is the evidence. The evidence of things not seen. Saving faith looks at faith in the past, looks at what Jesus accomplished on the cross, says that's where I'm putting my hope. That's where I'm putting my salvation and what Jesus did for me. Sanctifying faith looks at that and looks at the past and says, man, God has been faithful to me so many times, I can trust him in the future. Sanctifying faith is a forward-moving reality. It's always facing the future. It's always moving forward. It is hope in future grace. It's the grace that's always before us. I'm going to wake up in the morning, and guess what? His grace is still going to be there waiting. So both saving faith and sanctifying faith never takes eyes off of Jesus. Never. When, when Peter 
uh, sought to walk on water. Remember what happened? I love that story. Peter takes his eyes off Jesus, and what happens? Bloop! He sinks. He sinks, right? Because he looked at the wind and the waves instead of Jesus. And, and, and so he started to sink. And then Jesus reached out and rescued him. And they get back to the boat. And you remember what Jesus said? You of little faith. You of little faith. <laughs> See, the problem with Peter wasn't that God hadn't given him enough faith. Uh, I mean, he walked for a moment. I mean, he, was, he got out of the boat, which is, it was better than the other 11 dudes that are in the boat, right? A, a, a little faith got him out of the boat, which is better than the other disciples. And I think when Jesus said that, he, he wasn't just saying it to Peter. I think he was saying it to the whole group. All of you, ye of little faith. They, it wasn't because they didn't have enough faith because God didn't give them enough faith. They've been walking around with Jesus for crying out loud. It's just that they didn't incorporate the faith that they had. Jesus still rescued Peter. Jesus still saved him from the abyss, but he could have walked on water with Jesus. This is not a matter of like a name it and claim it. I mean, Peter didn't get out there and look at the guys and go, I claim this sea by God, it's my sea. He didn't claim it. And now I'm going to walk on it. No, it, it, it was about keeping his eyes on the object of his faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Things hoped for. Things hoped for doesn't mean everything that you hope for in life will happen to you if you just claim it. It's not what, it's not what it means, right? I claim this will happen. I claim this. I, I prayed it will happen. And now, if I have enough faith and believe hard enough, it will happen. That's not faith. That's not faith. That's a magic formula. I want X to happen, someone to be healed, uh, this problem to disappear, and so I'm going to claim it as though it's already a done deal, and then I'm going to ask God, and then I'm going to really believe extremely hard that it will happen. That is probably the most common way that people today think of faith. But what happens when you don't get what you claim? What happens when you don't get what you want, when you don't get what you pray for? Do you know what happens? You will start blaming. You will start blaming. And the first person you're going to blame is yourself. Ah, oh, I must not have had enough faith. Right? It's, it's like God has some kind of faith meter. You know, and he's like, oh, yeah. well, i got to believe harder. Yeah. Oh, it's just not enough. I'm not going to help you. If only you had a little more, you would have tipped the scale and I would have shown up. 
Better luck next time. It's ridiculous. But you start blaming yourself. If only, hey, maybe if I had more faith. The second thing that people do in droves is they start blaming God. We see people all the time these days say they, I, I lost my what faith. I lost my faith in God because I prayed that God would do something. He didn't do it. Didn't happen. And so I, I lost my faith. You prayed for God to heal someone and they died. You pray for your children and they still rebel. You pray for your marriage and it ends up in a divorce. And you blame God. And as a result, you conclude this about God, that either he doesn't care or he isn't good or he doesn't, he must not even exist. But faith is not saying, my will be done. It's not faith. Faith is saying, God, your will be done, and I will trust you no matter what. I will trust you. If you want to claim something, if you, ever, if you want to get, you know, name it, claim it, claim the name of Jesus. That Jesus Christ is Lord. Claim that, right? Faith is trusting in the character of God. Faith is saying, God, your will be done, not mine. If you, faith is, is yielding everything to God. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. Your will be done in Jesus' name for his glory, not mine. You show, I think you show more faith when you stare at tragedy in the face and you, you, you go through loss and you say, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. I think you show more faith than you ever do by simply wishing hard enough that God will do what you want. The things hoped for are the things God has promised concerning our salvation and the future that he has guaranteed to us. That's the things hoped for. It is grounded in our hope in Christ. Our hope is that one day our faith will be sight. Right? And it's not like I hope that happens. Hope is an assurance. Right? I, I, I hope in that. It's my substance. I hope for the day that my faith will become sight and I shall see him. And when I see him, I will become like him and I will live with him forever in a world without sin and without suffering and without death. Those are the things hoped for. And that's where my faith goes. Not in that God shows up and fixes everything here. And we live with an assurance in the promise of God in such a way, right, that we don't just sit around hoping, you know, one of these days. It, we, it, it changes our life now. We live in light of that reality. And so even though we don't possess all of these future promises yet, we live as though we already have them. Let me, let me give you an illustration, kind of think about it like this. Let's suppose that you, you uh, just won the lottery. Of course, because of your faith, 
Uh, you didn't buy a lottery ticket. You found it. But you, you found a lottery ticket. All your numbers lined up. And uh, you have been confirmed that you're the winner of $100 million. Yeah, that's a good, good win, right? So, so you, but you don't have the check yet. But you're getting it. You just don't have it yet. There's some documents you need to go sign. You need to go down to Austin and sign it. But for all practical purposes, you're rich. You're, you're like, I'm loaded. Yesterday, before you won the lottery, you were just you were sweating because you have a stack of bills on your desk. And you're going, how in the world am I going to pay all these? And you begin to get desperate. And you're like, oh, oh my goodness, you know. Am I going to pay for all this? Maybe I should sell a kidney. What, what am I going to do? And you're just, you're just so, maybe I should go to the street corner, start begging, asking for handouts. Are you going to do that now? How are you going to feel when you look at that desk of bills? <laughs> That's fine. I'm going to pay all those off. I'm going to pay everything off. I'm going to go buy this. I'm going to go do that. I'm not going to sell my kidney. I'm not going to go beg on the street corner because I'm rich. Are you rich at that moment? No. But you are confident that you are because you've won. Well, that's the same way faith works. Right? We're, we don't have everything yet that God has promised but it's coming. And because it's coming, we don't look at this life and just go, oh my God, everything is just out of proportion and every, I'm just so full of anxiety. No, we live in light of our future, of things not yet seen and things hoped for. And yet we do it with an assurance that it's coming. Faith is like that. So sanctifying faith is, is living life with God in light of a beautiful future that he has won for us and promised us. And that motivates us to live a beautiful life now. That's sanctifying faith. It motivates us to pursue holiness, to, to love others, to care for the poor, to evangelize the lost to desire to please God in every way. And God is pleased by faith, by our trusting in Him. In fact, we'll see in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, without faith it is impossible to please God. In December, there's my water. In December of 2016, there was a, a ride uh, at Knott's Berry Farm in California. This is one of my, my greatest fears, right? That became stuck. 148 feet in the air. Uh, this, this roller coaster became stuck. There were 20 people on board, including seven children. Firefighters tried to reach the stranded passengers, they used a massive ladder, but it was too short. And so fire crews uh, had no choice. They were going to have to climb up 
to where the people were and they were going to have to lower these people uh, harnessed by a rope to the ground. Fire captain by the name of Larry Kurtz said, quote, it sounds scary, but we have very, very strong ropes that have 9,000 pounds of breaking strength on them. He, he was building the faith of those who were trapped. Because I'm going, on oh, 9,000 pounds, man, I can't even break that. He, he was giving them information. And that information, if they believed it, would take away their fears, dissipate their fears altogether. And so it was given to each person to believe if what he said was true. So let's zero in on, on, on one of those kids. Say his name is Luke, seven years old. Uh, enough a seven-year-old, 148 feet off the ground to feel terror be absolutely terrified. And by the way, faith is not necessarily the absence of fear. It's moving forward in spite of the fear. So the firefighter looks uh, this kid in the eye and he says with a steady voice, you have to trust me. You got to trust me, Luke. I'm not going to let you go. Your life is very precious to me. I, I will have you down before you know it. I'm going to get you home. And Luke listens to that, and he thinks that's a really strong rope, and he believes that the firefighter has his best interest in mind, and he believes in the reassuring words, and he trusts him completely. This is the only rope that he can safely make at home. Then what does he do? By faith, he puts on the harness, and he lets the firemen drop him to the ground. That day, all Luke and all 20 passengers on that roller coaster were lowered to safely just before 10 p.m. at night. Every one of them. That's faith. Have you trusted in Jesus alone to bring you home safely? Truly trusted him. And, and, and if you trust him with your eternal salvation your eternal life, don't you think you can trust them with your present life? Daily? Have you trusted in Jesus alone for salvation? And if you have, are you still trusting him every single day? That's faith. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for this uh, launch into the study of, of faith as it was lived out by uh, ordinary people. Uh, we know them today not because of their greatness and their superior morality, but because of their faith. And Father, uh, the greatness is, is you because you're the one who gave them the faith. You're the one who supplies the faith. You're the one who has the rope. It's all in your hands. And so living that out is simply trusting in that reality, believing that every single day, believing that with our life, with our circumstances, with our kids, with our future, with our finances, every bit of our life that consumes us, the anxiety that overwhelms us, 
Father, we can give it to you. And we can have hope and we can move forward even though we can't see things. Can't perceive everything. We do know what our ultimate future is. So, fathers, we you, your word tells us uh, that we are to examine ourselves from time to time to see if we are of the faith, to see if we have faith. And so, I pray, Lord, we'd do that this morning. We would just examine ourselves to see if we have faith, saving faith sanctifying faith so we ask Holy Spirit examine our hearts give us the courage to accept the truth and then the gift to respond and ask it in Jesus name Amen I invite you to stand to your feet as we have a